Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Alexandra Lang. She is the author of four previous books, and she holds a PhD from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. Her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the shopping mall, which is published by our friends at Bloomsbury. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Alexandra, um, this is a version of a question I have asked a lot of authors over these past two years. How have you been doing? How has COVID-19 been treating you personally? And then how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected shopping malls how has it been treating me personally well it actually radically altered my plan for how to write this book Mm -hmm. um i had basically decided to devote the sort of calendar year of 2020 to writing this book and i spent the Mm -hmm. first two months of 2020 at the library reading all the books i could on shopping malls And then I set up all of these visits across the country to various shopping malls, including taking my kids to the Mall of America for spring break. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened and I canceled all of those trips. Mm -hmm. And I had to think like, can I still, you know, write this book from home essentially not knowing how long the pandemic would go on. And Mm -hmm. I ended up sort of restructuring the book and thinking a lot about how malls have changed over the years. And part of what I wanted to do in this book was to provide a snapshot of what those malls were like when they were young. And so Mm -hmm. that turned out to be something that I could do from home because I ended up, you know, reading a lot of newspaper articles and accounts from people and like finding YouTube videos of opening day of malls. Like there is actually so much material online that I could draw from to give an idea of like what malls were like when they were young, essentially. Um, So it ended up being a really great focused time for me to work on this project. largely helped by the fact that my kids are like teens and tweens now. And so they were actually able to run their own school, which I know for a lot of people was not an option who had smaller children. In terms of how um, COVID has affected malls, malls were already in decline pre-2020. Like not all of them. And that's something I'm at pains to explain in the book, but a lot Mm. of them. And I think COVID just accelerated a lot of the patterns that were already happening, you know, bankruptcies of department stores, um, kind of less prosperous malls just closing up shop because people, you know, weren't going out to shop. So um, I don't think it it didn't change the tra- trajectory. It just made it steeper. And we're going to see more and more malls closing in the next two years. I think I think there's a core of successful malls that is going to rebound. But a lot of the older malls and malls that haven't kept up with the times are going to close. And then that opens opportunities for you know redesigning them, redeveloping them, and all sorts of other things. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so... Imagine you were driving up or down I-95 and you see this shopping mall called American Dream. Why was this mall called American Dream? And what state, Alexandra, is the American Dream in now in 2022? Answer that however you like. 
American Dream is this huge, huge shopping mall um, in New Jersey, right near the Meadowlands Stadium. Mm-hmm. And it had been, basically people had been trying to open it for 20 years and mm-hmm. then they opened it in 2019 and then they had to close it again. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking the American Dream Mall as you know a re- representation of where the American Dream is today, it's a pretty de- depressing representation because mm-hmm. um, it's big and it's empty and it doesn't really understand its audience today. <laughs> right. um, that's the mall that I talk about when I open the book because mm-hmm. it's kind of on the doorstep of New York City and it incorporates you know, this huge food court, um, multiple amusement parks, a ski slope, kind of like everything you could throw into a mall like that mall has. And yet it really hasn't caught on and it's having the same struggles that like other smaller dumpier malls have just, you know, filling the slots of its stores. Yeah. Sorry, did that answer your question? I'm not Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a great it's a great metaphor. You know, you think of the American dream, like the, the house and the white picket fence, and you can't even buy a house these days. So, um, cause there's no inventory. Well, thank you, Alexandra. Yeah. Um, so you write about the government subsidizing, uh, homes and roads, but then you write that the government failed to subsidize public gathering places, which is partially responsible for the rise of the shopping mall. Uh, can you unpack this for us? Sure. One of the points I really hope to get across with the book is that malls are about people. You know, yes, they're about shopping, but they're also about kind of human desires to shop in public, to eat in public, to see other people, even if they, you know, aren't people that you already know. And I think, you know, in the post-war planning and subsidies for highways and houses, um, somehow the government thought that people would move to these houses in the suburbs and then drive on the highways back into central cities to do their shopping, to meet their friends, et cetera. And if you think about that, that is a ridiculous idea. Like many of the people in the suburbs are women with small children. Do they want to stick their children in the car? Do they want to drive long distances? Like, no, like you can kind of feel in your bones is like, that's not really a practical solution. So, you know, some of these suburbs have parks and some of them had small strips shopping centers, but they didn't really have a place to gather or a place that you could like spend a pleasant day with your friends. And so, you know, early mall developers um, and architects like Victor Gruen saw that there was this needful like space in between home and work, home and the highway. And that's where the mall fits in. Um, even those early strip malls are filling some of the same needs as original main streets, but then they slowly become more and more elaborate and nicer and nicer places to hang out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Alexandra. You write that the mall is personal that shopping malls are tied up with so many people's important life memories. Uh, Can you give us some examples of what these memories are? And do you feel like something is being lost here with so many malls dying? Like what will replace these memories? Stories about finding great deals online? (laughs) Well, for me, and I think a lot of other people, like malls are this important place for identity formation when you're a teenager. Um, You know, going to bookstores and finding finding books about what turns out to be your lifelong interest or going to stores like 
um, you know, Hot Topic or a music store and figuring out, okay, which bands do I like, you know, listening at all the stations and being like, okay, yes, grunge is for me, you know, I'm a child in the 90s. So I think that malls offered this really important space for teenagers to explore and being able to kind of choose from this visible buffet of options is something that you have on the internet, but you don't have them kind of like all in one space, like all in one purview. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of that identity formation is happening online and people are finding, you know, friends in online communities, but there's something about kind of being out there in public, being in three-dimensional space that really um, like offers, I think, an additional kind of humanistic dimension to that. And mm-hmm. it's, it's easy on the internet to get slotted into like a narrow niche where, you know, the algorithms keep showing you more of the same. And I think like one of the positive aspects of malls is that they were trying to appeal to so many different people, so many income levels. There were just so many more options laid out in front of you. Yeah. And and that's interesting because I think, you know, people are discovering music. You bring up grunge. Uh, people are discovering music, you know, with with algorithms and Spotify and such now, and you can't get the experience where you're like, well, my mom's going to the mall. I'm going to go to Camelot music and look, here's a CD single with Kurt Cobain playing music with William Burroughs or something like that. You know, Um, it's a shame. And and it's going to be interesting to see how the lack of that experience affects uh, the current generation that's growing up. Well, um, stepping a little bit outside of your book for a moment. I mentioned your PhD earlier because we're in a town here that's surrounded by universities and academics. And I'm curious, uh, as you have a PhD from the Institute of Fine Arts, can you tell our listeners how you spun that PhD into the authorship of five books and tell us what your previous books were about before this one? Sure. Um, I had actually worked as a journalist for New York Magazine before I went and got my PhD. So Mm -hmm. I always had in mind that I wanted to be an architecture critic. Um, Mm -hmm. So my PhD is in um, 20th century architecture history. And I actually wrote about uh, design and architecture for a variety of post-war corporations. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that knowledge of kind of post-war development patterns ended up in my book on the malls. And in fact, like a lot of the architects that I talked about designing corporate campuses also design malls. So there's a lot of overlap just in the time period and an understanding kind of the way, um, you know, post-war America came to be. Um, my other books, my previous book to this one was called The Design of Childhood. And Mm -hmm. that's also very related in the sense that, you know, if the design of childhood, I spoke a lot about playgrounds, I think that malls are in some ways a teenager's playground. So I feel like the two books are very connected through that theme. Um, before that, I wrote a book called The Dotcom City, which was about later corporate campuses like Facebook and Apple and mm-hmm. Google and how mm-hmm. um, they related to some of that earlier history of moving offices from downtown to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And my first book is also related. It was, it's called um, Design Research, the store that brought modern living to American homes. And that was about one of the first stores to sell modern design in the early 1950s mm-hmm. in Cambridge and Boston. So working on that book taught me a lot about retail history and kind of how stores work from the inside. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, you gained a new fan um, with my wife who was reading the blurb of uh, your new book, um, and she's very interested in the design of childhood. We have a five-year-old, um, so I look forward to um, learning more about that. And also your book about corporate campuses. Uh, I went to the Twitter office once as I have a friend that works there, and it was insane. Um, <laughs> talk about a playground for adults, I guess, or, or whatever it is. But um, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was in a candy store literally as I walked into a room with you know all these giant candy dispensers it, it looked like it um personal chefs etc what a what a crazy place um well thank you alexandra listeners we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor then i will be right back with alexandra lane the book and podcast is sponsored by libro fm audiobooks Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the shopping mall, which is published by our friends at Bloomsbury. Alexandra, I want to ask a question about architecture. I did some work when I was a graduate student uh, with Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project, and my friend and creative writing teacher, Marcel Krickenberger, did a lot of work uh, on The Arcades Project as well. Listeners, if you're interested in such things, look up The Arcades Project Project uh, on the internet. It's, it's very interesting. But I bring this up because arcades, architecturally speaking, are not far removed from the shopping mall. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the architecture of the shopping mall and what inspired it? And I'm talking about shopping malls as they were when they first started appearing on the American landscape, not as they are now. Yeah, the arcades um, are actually a really, really important precedent for the shopping mall. Um, the arcades, if you don't know, are, you know, mostly mid 19th century um, shopping, covered shopping streets built in center cities, often using new glass and steel technology. Um, and some of the most famous ones are in Milan and Paris, and they often have a barrel vaulted glass roof. And um, basically as shopping malls got bigger and bigger in the US starting circa 1970, a lot of them aped those that arcade architecture. Um, one I'm thinking of in particular is the Galleria Mall by HOK in Houston, which basically looks exactly like a European arcade. It has this, you know, arching glass roof, except, um, you know, it's the 1970s. It has an ice skating rink at the bottom, which they mm -hmm. never would have done in Paris. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like American architects took these European precedents and this architecture that was already associated with shopping, and then they transported it you know, to warm climates, to the suburbs, and just like plopped it down in the middle of a parking lot. <laughs> mm. Yeah, thanks. You're reminding me of uh, 
a mall I used to go to when I was a kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, the Eastland Mall had an ice skating rink in the bottom. Uh, also, it was, it was fun. Um, we need something like that in Raleigh with the Carolina hurricanes causing a lot of uh, ice skating enthusiasm. Um, speaking of malls around here, Alexandra, you open your book by talking about malls that are local to us here in Raleigh, North Carolina, which I did not know about when we scheduled this interview. I was pleasantly oh, okay. surprised. <laughs> um, but can you compare and contrast Durham's Northgate Mall, Raleigh's Crabtree Mall, and Durham's newer Streets of South Point Mall? Sure. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was curious whether you had scheduled me as a quote unquote local author or not. Because Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in Durham. So let's see. Yeah. And Northgate, um, now defunct, was my kind of original shopping mall. And I'd say Northgate is a very is and was always a very utilitarian mall. Like it was a mall that started as just a strip having a drugstore and a supermarket. Then it got enclosed, but its anchor stores were Sears and um, various iterations of Belk. And so it was always kind of like a mid-range middle-class mall, whereas Crabtree Valley has always been kind of like a marquee mall for the area. Like I I write in the book that my mom would take me there like once a year for back to school shopping because it was a bit of a drive from Durham and they had the one boutique that sold Esprit. So higher end brands, brands you couldn't get anywhere else, um, a higher level of department store as anchor. And I would say like a more beautiful interior, you know, more plants, more light, um, nicer materials. Um, And then I think, you know, the streets at South Point, um, which opened much later in in 2002, um, is a type of mall called a lifestyle center where they start to take the mall back outside, you know, and make it more visually similar to the main streets that malls were originally trying to replace. Um, And I'm sure that the she said South Point has been a big rival to Crabtree Valley because I see the stores there being kind of like at the same economic level. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can see kind of the mall growing up and also the mall trying to change to, you know, retain its audience gain a new audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, Again, I did not know that they, we had these local ties, but I am now very happy to claim you uh, as a local <laughs> author. Um, and the Crabtree Valley Mall just went on sale last week. It may have sold by now. I don't know. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, it's still relatively crowded compared to other spots around town. Um well, Alexander, because we are a podcast that is presented by a bookstore being recorded here in a bookstore, let me ask you about the Sweet Valley High books. Um, <laughs> you write that you had to sneak into a mall store to read these books because your parents uh, or a parent did not approve of them. I personally think I would be thankful to see my child reading anything. Uh, what was going on here with the disallowing of Sweet Valley High books? And can you think of any books that would be analogous to this situation today in 2022. <laughs> it seems like Sweet Valley High is so tame compared to things that kids may find on the internet. Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned before, like the Triangle is a university um, mm-hmm. agglomeration, and my parents were both professors. And I think uh-huh. that they had some old fashioned ideas mm-hmm. about kind of what was worth reading. And mm-hmm. Sweet Valley High in their minds wasn't worth reading. But I, you know, 
like all kids like wanted to know what my friends are reading, like wanted to know like what happened in high school, you know, like maybe mm-hmm. Sweet Valley High could tell me. So yeah, I would sneak into the back of Walden Books at South Square and just like skim read a, a Sweet Valley High like during my time at the mall. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I feel like the equivalent of Sweet Valley High now is probably um, some middle grade and YA uh graphic novels that are mm-hmm. kind of like projecting a little ahead for kids like what high school might be like what issues might be like in high school and so on you know mm-hmm. like I, as I said I have kids who are 11 and 14 and I basically like don't tell them no about reading anything and mm-hmm. um, I've you know read all the studies that say like reading graphic novels is reading like you just want kids to read and cutting them off from something that appeals to them um, just mm-hmm. because you don't think it's as good as some other book is really like a counterproductive parenting strategy. Um, I mean, I do understand that like some parents want children to like come to certain kinds of knowledge in their own time. Um, and, and that's fine. And like, that's why they have categories like middle grade and YA, et cetera. So the parents can Mm. kind of know what the material is in those things. But personally, I don't think my kids are sneaking any books because I'm pretty liberal about, you know, what they can and can't read. I mean, the other important thing I think about, you know, like having that Walden books was just that there was the option for me to skim along the shelves and kind of find that for myself. Um, And as I was saying before, there is something different about physical browsing as opposed to internet browsing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's important to like have the opportunity to do both because that's how you find things serendipitously that may end up being like the key to some whole new topic that you never knew existed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, listeners, it's important to read and support everything. I'll say, you know, as a former academic, I can pull off of my office bookshelf here, like an old copy of Ulysses, but I will also read a comic book with no shame. Um, (laughs) and, um, you know, just, just reading is great. You got to read whatever's in front of you. Um, well, thank you, Alexandra. My next question is about pop culture. Uh, did the last season of the Netflix series Stranger Things bring back any nostalgia for the shopping mall? I know the band My Morning Jacket has a song on their newest album about the mall in Stranger Things, for example. You know, the proposal I wrote for this book actually started describing a scene for strain- from Stranger Things to kind of nice. argue that like people were ready to take them all seriously, like people mm-hmm. um, my age and younger, like had all of this nostalgia and like it was worth exploring at greater length. So yeah, I mean, Stranger Things definitely kind of was the kick in the pants I needed to say like, okay, like now is the time for a mall book. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also think like Stranger Things does a great job of exploring some of the themes that I also um, explore in the book. Like I mentioned before, like identity formation of teens happens at the mall. There's that great kind of makeover sequence for Eleven that's like part of the Stranger Things season. I also Mm -hmm. think just the whole larger plot um, of Stranger Things set at Starcourt Mall um, kind of goes to this way that malls have often in like fiction and science fiction been seen as like alternate universes hmm. um, and that you can kind of get everything you need for life at the mall. And I think that's very much the vibe of that season and kind of like the underlying 
uh, message that like you could live in the mall forever, but like, is that a good thing? Like, what does that connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Alexandra. Um, well, there's a lot more to talk about here, but our time is limited. I do look forward to our customers finding out about this book. I think it's going to be very successful here in Raleigh. Um, I know a couple of our booksellers have read the advanced reading copy already. Uh, but finally, I did want to ask you, what happens uh, to a building that used to house a shopping mall when a mall dies? I know what has happened to Cary Town Center, one town over in Cary, North Carolina, for example, as um, Epic Games, creators of Fortnite and the Unreal Engine, et cetera, have bought them all to use for their offices. Um, they left the um, arcade, which I can't recall the name of right now, intact. Um, but what's happening to these buildings everywhere else? Yeah, I think this is going to be a big challenge for planning and architecture and design going forward because, mm -hmm. you know, malls are in an enormous amount of space and enormous amount of square footage. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a lot of interesting projects that have already happened that show like a positive way forward. One of my favorite ones um, is Austin Community College, which mm -hmm. took over the former Highland Mall in Austin about 10 years ago. And they mm -hmm. have slowly um, repurposed the buildings of the mall into different facilities for their college. Um, there's also a public TV station that now has offices and studios there. And they're, instead of leaving the parking lot as this big expanse of blacktop, they're building stacked parking and then building new housing, some of it for students in the parking lot. So like that's a great way to keep using the real estate for something that's community focused, but not make it so car centric um, and to bring back some green and to kind of densify. Cause a lot of these mall locations, when they were built, they were really like at the fringes of the city, but now they're like deeply embedded in cities because they've just sprawled out so much over the last 50 years. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Alexandra, and thank you for writing this wonderful and informative book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the shopping mall, which is published by our friends at Bloomsbury. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. <laughs> Once again, I would like to thank Alexandra Lang for joining me. Copies of Meet Me by the Fountain, Inside History of the Shopping Mall can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O, K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.